this episode, I speak with best-selling memoirist, editor, and nonfiction writing coach, Louisa D.C. Key points addressed were Louisa's incredible journey throughout writing her first memoir titled Love and Other U-Turns. We also looked at the self-taught and honed education and subsequent skill set that Louisa developed in order to write her following and best-selling memoir titled A Letter from Paris. We also examine how Louisa used her education and self-taught knowledge in order to develop her online memoir and nonfiction publishing programs that she now offers online. Stay tuned for my enthralling interview with Louisa DC. My name is Patricia Kathleen, and this podcast series contains interviews I conduct with women, female-identified, and non-binary individuals regarding their professional stories and personal narrative. This podcast is designed to hold a space for all individuals to learn from their counterparts regardless of age, status, or industry. We aim to contribute to the evolving global dialogue surrounding underrepresented figures in all industries across the USA and abroad. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to check out our subsequent series that dive deep into specific areas such as vegan life, fasting, and roundtable topics. They can be found via our website, patriciacathleen.com, where you can also join our newsletter. You can also subscribe to all of our series on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the conversation. everyone and welcome back. I'm your host Patricia and today I am elated to be sitting down with Louisa DC. Louisa is a best-selling memoirist, editor, and nonfiction writing coach. You can find more about all of her work as well as the uh, services she offers on her website www.louisadc.com. That is l-o-u-i-s-a-d-e-a-s-e-y.com. Welcome Louisa. Hello, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited to climb through everything um, that you're doing. We were talking off the air and um, I told you that we've had a lot of audience um, listeners write in over the years and talk about writing coaches and people who um, can advise about writing roles um, a a great deal in our past. I know that everything that you share with us today is going to be received in the highest regard. Oh, that's good to know. (laughs) Absolutely. For everyone listening who's new to the podcast, I'll offer up a quick roadmap of the direction my inquiries will head, and then I will read a bio on Louisa so that everyone can garner a brief sense of um, her background before I start peppering her with questions. So the roadmap for today's podcast, we will first look at Louisa's um, academic and professional background leading her up to the services that we will then unpack. Then I will turn towards, of course, unpacking Louisa's suite of online memoir and nonfiction publishing programs. I know a few of those are currently being um, zhuzhed up and changed a bit. Then we'll look at unpacking um, the goals that Louisa has for the next one to three years, both professionally and personally. Those have changed a lot for a lot of people in regards to the... um, current climate of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, And then we'll wrap the entire uh, podcast up with advice that uh, Louisa may have for those of you who are looking to uh, get involved with some of her services or perhaps emulate some of her career success. A quick bio as promised on Louisa before I start peppering her with questions. Louisa DC is a twice published best-selling memoirist, editor, and nonfiction writing coach. Over the past 20 years, Louisa has worked as a magazine editor, 
and features journalist, ghostwriter, newspaper columnist, digital copywriter, online editor, and media and publicity consultant to major brands, personalities, and experts in the health, travel, lifestyle, design, medicine, and psychology space. More recently, Louisa has created a suite of online memoir and nonfiction publishing programs for writers at every stage of the publishing journey. Her work has been featured in Vogue, Body and Soul, The Guardian, Cosmopolitan, The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald, and hundreds more publications. She is currently at work on her third memoir. So, Louisa, I cannot wait to unpack um, a lot of that with you. I'm excited. I haven't had anyone who actually self-identifies as a memoirist on, and I cannot wait to climb into that with you. Um, I find it such a valid and noble profession. Um, But before we get to that, I'm hoping that you can describe for all of our audience members listening and those watching on the vodcast um, a little bit about your academic and professional background leading up to where you are now. Sure. So, uh, well, I went to high school, which is um, pretty normal here in Australia. Um, Then I took a year off. and just worked. I lived in a share house and I worked and I did a few little short courses in acting and drama. Uh, And then I started an arts degree, which I think it's the same in the US, it's liberal arts. Um, I thought I wanted to do drama and acting. Um, I can't believe I never even noticed how much I loved writing, but it wasn't until I was in my third year um, of Mm. my arts degree that I realised I actually loved writing about the plays that I was studying rather than being in them because I didn't really like people looking at me. Um, so yeah. I, I had a bit of a switch and I ended up doing a double degree in literature um, because I'd accidentally taken on too many drama subjects um, before I realised that I didn't really want to do that. Yeah. And then because I, lo- I realised sort of it took three years of writing essays for me to realise that I actually loved that part of uh, studying Uh, I applied for a really, well, at that time, it was really prestigious um, writing, post-grad writing degree in Melbourne. Um, And I thought I didn't get in because I'd booked in the newspaper on the wrong day. Um, So I applied to work on a cruise ship because I thought, well, look, I'll just travel the world and write about that, you know, write my diary instead. Um, And I literally made it through to the third round of interviews for this job on Crystal Cruises or whatever it was. Um, when my aunt called me and said, congratulations, I just saw your name in the paper for the writing college. Um, so I had actually got in, so I had to, (laughs) uh, cancel that at the last minute. And I started this, um, writing postgraduate. It was a two year, um, it was a two year, it's it's called TAFE. I'm not sure what that is in the U S but it's more hands-on than university. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the whole reason that that, uh, course, it was RMIT, which is Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. Uh, professional writing and editing and I think the reason that it was so um, highly regarded was because the teachers in the um, it wasn't academic it wasn't philosophical it was actual hands-on how to get published which you know I, I don't know that was just sort of the holy grail when I was at university no one um, you know they talk about writing and publishing but no one could actually tell you how to get published yeah. So I did, I started that course um, and I loved it, but I ended up being quite disappointed um, because it wasn't all that it was sold to me to be. And I sort of thought, wow, well, if this is one of the best publishing courses in Australia, then <laughs> it's not very good. Yeah. Um, and I got a lot of sort of the wrong advice in that course. Uh, and I ended up sort of seeking out a lot of stuff on my own and 
I remember this is before the internet was, you know, the internet existed, but it wasn't big. It was 2001. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of the course was a topic called industry overview. And we needed to do uh, a few hours. Um, sorry, I think it was two weeks uh, on site at a publishing company. So either a newspaper or a book or a um, magazine publishing company. And all that that course had told me to contact was this tiny little publisher in Melbourne and see if I could get a couple of weeks unpaid work there and I didn't want to work at that tiny little publisher that um, just sounded miserable and <laughs> I yeah. didn't want to work there I wanted to work for magazines at that time like that was my passion and all the magazines all the women's magazines offices were in Sydney so I bought a copy of um, the writer's marketplace which was like this it was like $55 and I remember saving up my waitressing money and buying it and yeah. just going through the list of phone numbers and calling every single women's magazine until I could get someone that would take me on for a couple of weeks work. And then I went back to RMIT and I said, oh, I've got two weeks at L magazine. I've got two weeks at B magazine. And they were like, what are you talking about? They don't take interns. And I said, yeah, they do. I just had to call 50, you know, 57 times. Yeah. Um, and then so I flew up to Sydney and, and did that. And that was, I, was, I guess you'd say I was off to the races because I got my first byline in, in that, that work. And I'm sort of simplifying it now, but uh, that really taught me that, um, you know, I just, there's only so much that you can learn at university and, and mm -hmm. take, you know, you really have to do it yourself in a lot of ways. Um, and the other thing is the people that are teaching you are often, um, there's a reason that they're teaching, you know, they've, they've obviously yeah. had their career or they're, you know, having a break or, so I just found a real gap between what I was being taught and what I really wanted to do. Um, mm -hmm. And I learned so much as soon as I actually started working in, like, I think it was the following year, I got my first job uh, at a newspaper back in Melbourne. And I learned more about writing for publication in a week there than I had at, you know, five years at university. Um, yeah. So it was just really interesting to me, the, the gap between academic learning and actual, actually being inside a newspaper or a magazine office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, in the States, we call that on-the-job training, O-T-J-T. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think that uh, it's <laughs> it's so true, though. I mean, I, I can't say it enough, and I'm a big, um, I'm really big on internships or any type of apprenticeship, things yeah. of that nature. Um, there are so many fields that I think do this as well. Computer, I'm married to an original Silicon Valley computer nerd. A lot of people oh, who wow. listen to me know that. And the most hysterical thing for me, and I think it might be changing right now, but it's not nearly quickly enough. Um, computer programming as studied in university has absolutely nothing to do with the code that is written that affects you <laughs> and I and that changes really the strange. world. They yeah, study like really theory. Odd. And that's the same thing with writing. I think you're right in literature and all of my university um, degrees and and what I love about university is that you do study philosophy and theory, but yeah. there's absolutely no practicality. There's no yeah. applicability in that yeah. knowledge, and I think that writing is a crucial one. And I think your story also brings up a really interesting point, which I've always described. There's a certain amount of entrepreneurship, even to the writers of old. You know, Thoreau absolutely. going out to Walden. You know, all of those things. That is a very kind of like gusto, gritty. Yeah. And I think that people leave that out when they talk about writers, you know, and, and what it's necessary to be a writer and successful. You running off to Sydney, you calling 57 times, you know. <laughs> oh, I would have been more than that. 
But yeah, it's so interesting that you say that. Um, I have all of, I have all three of Stephen Pressfield's books. Have you read The War of Art and Turning yes. Pro? And I love, I love his books. Um, and he, I, lo- I think it's in The War of Art. He says, um, find you, you know, there's nothing uh, braver and more entrepreneurial than sitting at a blank screen and, you know, trying to put your heart out there in a, in a way that's palatable for the world to, to read your story. Yeah. And he says, find yourself an entrepreneur to chat to for some motivation. And I'm like, yeah, that is so true because it's, yeah. it's very similar. You're putting yourself out there. You're trying something that's never been done before. Um, yeah. It, yeah. I totally agree with you there. <laughs> and you have to have a certain amount. It's, it's a crazy tightrope for, for authors. I find you have to care deeply about your audience, but you also have to have this kind of devil may care, je ne sais quoi about like, I'm just going to put it out there. I don't care what anyone says. Like, here it is. Here's me, you know, because if you worry too much, you don't release it. You don't put it out. And if you, if you don't worry enough, then you're not capturing your audience in the way that you ought to, you know, this, this kind of give and take is so difficult. I'm wondering, um, how did your career after you kind of launched into doing all of these, you got your first byline from this, you know, very gritty, like something tiny. Yeah. So how did that kind of launch into, did you start to pepper into taste as to know which areas of writing you were most suited towards? How did you find like your memoirist moment? Well, it's so funny because I didn't actually know that I loved memoir until a few years ago. Um, but I, so that, you know, I've simplified it a lot, but I, you know, I went to Sydney. That was actually a six month process when I was working, interning, trying to get a job. Uh, a paid job because I was working like 40 hours a week at a restaurant in Cockle Bay in Sydney while I was doing days unpaid at these offices. And my dream, and the thing was back then, because it wasn't, there was no, you know, the internet wasn't as big as it is now. You had to actually be working on staff to see the staff job ads for mm. Pacific publications and all of those places. And nothing came up in the times that I was there. And I, I made some contacts and I was like, can you please let me know if something comes up? Um, and I ended up running out of money and just being exhausted because I was working so much because Sydney is so expensive. I came back to Melbourne uh, and went, you know, got a waitressing job here in Melbourne uh, and then just started sending out, because again, no internet, sending out colour photocopied packs of my tiny little byline. So I think by then I had had a little, a review of a film, uh, an essay, a first-person essay, which is memoir, um, in runner's world. Um, so I used to run quite a lot. Uh, and maybe one other thing and, oh yeah, a quiz. I had a quiz published in Clio magazine. <laughs> um, and I would send out these color coordinated packs and that must've cost me so much money because it was all by post. Um, and eventually I got a job, I think it was eight or nine months later at the Herald Sun, which is our major daily newspaper. Um, and they actually had a hiring freeze on at the time, which I didn't know, but um, nice. I'm glad I didn't know because yeah. I still got the job there. Um, and that was fantastic. Like that was a baptism of fire. And um, I got more bylines there. And um, what I found that I really enjoyed writing about was health and well-being and psychology. Um, because I think I knew the health editor from school and she'd said, oh, if you want to write a couple of columns, you can do that. Um, and I just... A bit like you, I loved interviewing people. So I think one of my first articles was on iron deficiency or something. And I had to find a medical expert to interview on why women 
have less iron than men typically Mm. or something like that. And I just love the whole process of putting together a story, Um, you know, formulating the argument, getting um, experts uh, to give you information, that sort of thing. Um, And I had seen in my time at the magazine offices that freelancers, you know, that you could freelance for health magazines or, or women's magazines on health topics and get paid quite well. I think back then, you know, feature articles. This was still when we had print that, you know, people read print. Um, So you'd get maybe $1,000 for a a health feature. So I made it my goal to to make a living writing health features and psychology features. There's a magazine in Australia called Good Medicine and I pitched to them. Um, I just pitched lots of articles and I was still waitressing and then I eventually quit the Herald Sun because I didn't want to do news journalism. I found it quite harrowing. Um, I, I really couldn't, I just couldn't handle it. Um, I was there when the Bali bombings happened, which oh, wow. was a major news story um, here in Australia because Bali is so close to Australia. And yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I couldn't take it. I'm not, I'm not cut out for news journalism. Um, so I, I'm trying to fast forward. So after that, I started freelancing. I loved writing about health and psychology. I loved interviewing people, I, sort of the same as you. Um, you know, it just, it, feel, it feels like such a privilege when people open up their lives to you. And yeah, um, it's very mutually inspiring. And I, I find the whole process of interviewing very interesting. Um, I think I was working for a, an architecture magazine and I interviewed this architect and I could see him actually transforming in front of my eyes when I was interviewing him because he was he was considering something he'd never considered before just because of the way I'd framed the question Um, and I've always found that really interesting so then um, miraculously and I'm making it sound quick but this took a few years I gathered enough work to actually just be living off my freelancing so I no longer needed to waitress Uh, and I met um, this comedian who um, he lived out of his car and he Excellent. basically just performed in outback rough pubs around Australia. And I fell in love with him really quickly um, and basically moved into his car because I was like, well, I can write from anywhere. At that point <laughs> I was making enough money um, and it was just a huge adventure. And so I went traveling with him for about a year and that was sort of when my career took off in terms of freelancing so it was quite strange. I got all these weekly columns, um, fashion columns, would you believe, um, in, a, in another newspaper called The Age. And um, I was travelling with him through these really, really rough redneck sort of places yeah. um, and having to write sometimes from the front seat of the car or like a, a room at the back of the pub. Um, and eventually I came back to Melbourne because, yeah, I, couldn't, I could only live out of a car for so long. I, I missed Melbourne. Um, and I'd always thought like, I sort of thought, well, I'm always looking for the next thing. And I sort of thought, well, the only thing that is left for me now is to write a book. Um, because Mm -hmm. I had been freelancing at that point for two or three years, I think, um, which I loved, but I just wanted to do something bigger. Um, and I always wanted to write a book and I think I was getting up close to 30 years old and, I don't know. It's those those significant birthdays that make you sort of think, oh, I've, yeah. I've got to do that thing that I always said I'd do. Mm-hmm. So um, I started writing a book about traveling around Australia with Jim, which was a memoir, travel memoir, because I always loved reading travel memoirs as well. 
Mm-hmm. And um, long story short, and I sort of talk about this a lot in um, a lot of my memoir blogs and trainings and things, but, you know, it took, I didn't know how to write a book. Who knows how to write a book when they start? Yeah. Um, and I had a really, really, so I had a few really fortuitous connections. A woman on the street introduced me to her literary agent, like who was one of the top literary agents in Australia. Nice. So that was a very amazing fluke. But I also had the most brutal rejection that you could actually imagine. Like one of the top publishers in Australia um, agreed, uh, arranged to meet with me. She contacted my agent. She said she'd been reading my manuscript. Uh, she agreed to meet with me at a cafe and she'd flown down to Melbourne from Sydney and I thought, wow, she's going to offer me a book deal. And I told all my family and my friends. Oh, no. And after an hour of her telling me how bad my writing was, why I'd never be published, I had to actually say, well, I, I might go now. <laughs> yeah. What a malicious and moment. It was pretty awful. It was really awful. It took me six months to get over that. I couldn't even look at the manuscript. I was just humiliated, absolutely humiliated. What was the point, I wonder, looking back now that you have success under your belt, what was the point of her going to such effort? Well, and this is the thing I didn't know at the time. You know, I was so naive, um, which I sort of think you have to be uh, to get anything done. (laughs) Um, it took another year when I did actually sign the book deal for that book and I met with my new publisher and she gave me the background to that particular person and said, you know, she's, she's been put on, on leave for bullying. She's got, you know, a mental health disorder and various other things. And I, and I was like, oh my God, because I never, I thought I would go to the grave without knowing why she had, you know, flown down to to basically put me down for an hour in a cafe. Um, The power hierarchy in publishing is ridiculous. I mean, it's it's, it's right up there with one of the most antiquated, you know, deity and subject kind of relationships that happen. And I, I'm excited about it being overturned and we can get into this later. I've spoken to a lot of authors that self-publish because that, that this system, it was abusive at its finest. So abusive. I'm wondering, are you describing the the beginnings of Love and Other U-Turns? Yes, yes. Oh, my word. So that book was published, uh, yeah, so after I got over the brutal rejection and everything, um, I actually rewrote the book uh, and then pitched it on a cold pitch Friday and it was like she called, the publisher called me on the Tuesday and offered me a book deal and I just like cried. Um, And it was published, I think, six months after that which is pretty quick in publishing. Really fast. Um, what caused you to like finally kind of regroup after six months from your lashing and think, no, no, this is good. I know so many people that would abandon a piece of work with that kind of like oh, an abusive moment in their life. You know, it doesn't take I would much. have abandoned it. And uh, yeah, my friend Dave, he's no longer alive. I ran into him just on the street and he, he and I had gone to school together and he was the only other student who studied literature in our country high school. And he was a good friend. He was like a soul friend, you know, but I hadn't seen him for about five years. And I ran into him on the street and I just said, I said, I wrote a book, but it, but it got, you know, blah, blah, blah or something. And, you know, I just vaguely told him the story, but I was still crushed. And he yeah. said, but you wrote a book. You wrote, you actually finished it. You've got to pick it yeah. up. And he was determined. He took it on, he, like it was on him that I get that book back, you yeah. know, to a publisher. And if it hadn't been for him, 
so passionate about getting me and he looked at it and he gave me feedback and he was like, you need to start the story here. Um, and he was so passionate and he was actually dying of liver cancer at the time. And he passed away before that book was published. He was only 32. Um, mm. But if it hadn't been for him, I wouldn't have picked it up. But he was just so determined. He's like, but you wrote it and you finished it. You can't just chuck it out. And I think about that now and I think that's how I want to be for other people because it is, yeah. I think it's just, it's a tragedy when people get so crushed by a rejection that they yeah. um, just put it away. And I've seen that happen and it's, you know, it takes a long time to finish a book. Oh, it really does. <laughs> you can't just leave it. <laughs> and bless Dave for knowing that, you know, and yeah. pushing you to, um, I think you're right. I think voices of, of um, encouragement are so necessary Absolutely. and people don't realize I think how important that they can be, you know, from yeah. the outside. So after you had your initial success, did it immediately um, catapult you into um, um, a letter from Paris or did you take some time? How did that play out the aftermath of success? No. So this is sort of a complicated, I mean, yeah. So the book, so Love and Other U-Turns came out. It was a very odd time in my life because my mum died at the same time and also publishing had switched completely online so everything mm. that I used to do for money yeah. which was pitch feature articles uh it went down from first the word counts dropped so we went from you know a 1900 word feature to 700 words so that means if you're getting paid by the word you're now getting 350 dollars where you used to get uh 1200 so it just became less and less um uh, it was harder and harder to live off freelancing um and i knew that i had to retrain in the digital world but i had no idea where to start um because you know and a lot of people that i had worked at herald sun with or had who'd been freelance journalists or who'd been, been journalists um it, it was a really hard time everyone was like you know, they just suddenly lost their jobs. I know a woman who started a funeral home after <laughs> losing her 20-year job, you know, in newspaper yeah. sub-editing because yeah. she was like, well, that's never going to, you know, there's always going to be <laughs> a need for a funeral home. It's true. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah but I, I sort of, and I saw some of the bloggers coming up and I think Sarah Wilson had just started blogging in Australia. She's the I Quit Sugar lady. And I could see that some of these people were really taking on the digital world um, and harnessing that. But I had no idea where to start. Like, I'm such an untech savvy person, like, you yeah. know, and I didn't know anyone who did it. And I ended up taking this. And the thing was, my book came out, and I'll talk about this a bit later, but uh, I had no idea what I should have done when that book came out to really make it a success. Mm. So, a lot of people don't know when a book comes out. Um, you know, you basically get three months, if you're lucky, um, of prime shop, shop shelf space. Yeah. Uh, and you've got to do as many interviews, as much publicity as you possibly can. I had like a website that was stuck in the 1970s. I, um, <laughs> you know, I had to ask people to actually update it for me because it was all HTML code. I didn't even know. I couldn't even update yeah. my website. It wasn't even on WordPress or anything. It was on some, something that I don't even know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was really shocked. The book came out and it sold a few copies. And then by October that year, it was like, I'd never done anything. And I was starting from mm -hmm. scratch again. And so 
I was really crushed actually. It was quite depressing because I sort of thought, well, I spent so long on this book and, um, you know, these are these things that people don't tell you about publishing, but, you know, you need to be start thinking a year ahead. You need to be doing your publicity yeah. countdown. And then um, this is before podcasts really were a thing as well. And I did do a lot of radio interviews, but, um, but because I, did, I had this weakness in the tech sphere, I didn't have a good website. I didn't know how to, how to set up a blog. I, um, yeah, I didn't know how to do any of that. I basically went back and got a corporate job at an accounting company because they would take, they taught me how to do web editing and, um, you know, I had to use like six different, um, content management systems and yeah. I learned a lot, but it was the most boring job I've ever had in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, I just, I needed to get a job and I needed to learn how to use the internet, you know, digital publishing. Um, and so I was sending out seven weekly tax newsletters at this incredibly boring job. And I think I only lasted like three months, but God, I learned a lot. Nice. Um, and then I went to Byron Bay because, um, as I said, my mum had died not long, you know, maybe a year, year and a half earlier. And I was still very, very wounded from that. So I sort of packed up all of my things and moved to Byron Bay um, and just sort of lived in this shed that overlooked a forest, which didn't cost very much money. Um, and started writing like digital copywriting. So I, I transferred the skills that I'd been doing as a journalist to that um, and got quite a lot of stuff published. The only difference is your byline isn't on it when it's copywriting. Um, and at that point, I started writing a fiction novel. Um, sorry, this is such a long-winded way of no, coming to love, and, I I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so I started writing a fiction novel because I thought... Um, Oh, that was the other thing. So publishing a memoir, um, it was actually also quite a bizarre psychological process when Love and Other U-Turns came out because, as I said, my mum had just died and I was doing all these interviews based on the person that I was when I wrote Love and Other U-Turns. So yeah. there's all this freewheeling, yeah, it's a, quite a funny book. Like it's, um, it's all about the wackiness of outback towns and, you know, how I liked not having many possessions and just living out of the car and um, being so free in Australia. But after my mum died, I, I really changed. Like yeah. my character changed. I think no one loses a parent without changing a lot. And so it was quite hard doing those interviews and trying to be all cheery and mm -hmm. um, promote that book when yeah. I had changed so dramatically. Um, so I thought, well, gee, I don't think I can write another memoir because it's just so personal. And, you know, people are asking me about my relationship with Jim when really, um, and saying, you know, your mum must, your parents must be so proud of you. And I hadn't even properly grieved and it was all yeah. just, it was really hard. It's, it's very hard um, promoting a memoir because it is so personal. You need to have a lot of, uh, not protective, but you need to know what you're doing. And I didn't know what I was doing. I, I hadn't, I didn't really know anyone else who'd published a book. I the, the lady on the street who'd interviewed, introduced me to the literary agent had sent me some great advice. But aside from that, you know, I, there were no writing coaches at that point, you know, there weren't, yeah. um, yeah. So I moved to Byron Bay and I started working on a fiction novel, which was sort of a thinly veiled fiction. It was about trauma and grief and processing mm. sort of what I was processing. 
Uh, and the only way I could write it was to make it a fiction, even though it really wasn't. It was all just a metaphor. Um, yeah. And then I, I sort of I did what I needed to do in Byron Bay and I came back to Melbourne about a year later and, uh, yeah, just, just went back to work and uh, I was pitching that fiction novel around. Um, I ended up going to the US, going to this incredible writer's retreat um, because I wanted to get it to a publisher in the US because I thought, well, the reason my book, uh, Love and Other U-Turns, wasn't a success is because it was only published in Australia. It's such a small market here. Mm -hmm. um, but that didn't really eventuate. And then that book was sort of messy. And um, I think I really didn't, I'm not supposed to write fiction. It's not, <laughs> I didn't have the genre right. I didn't even know if it was a thriller or a romance or what or like a supernatural, it was just, it was a bit of everything. That book was kind of my therapy, writing that book. Yeah, it sounds cathartic. More than <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Maybe, maybe not for, for being published. Um, <laughs> and anyway, and so I came back to Melbourne and yeah, just got lots of different jobs, editing and ended up working in media, um, sort of media training and marketing for Melbourne University, which is really big, um, it's, I think it's one of our biggest universities and I loved that job. And, um, you know, I really just threw myself into my work and thought, you know, like, okay, I've published a book, but I'm probably never going to do that again. Uh, even though I wanted to, um, I sort of stuffed that down because I'd been so disappointed with what yeah. happened with Love and Other U-Turns. Um, anyway, long story short, uh, I had just finished a year working at Melbourne Uni and I'd quit because of something really awful that happened there uh, with, with this boss. And um, I received this email from a woman in Paris about my father. And so my dad died when I was very young. And she said, um, our grandmother died yesterday. Uh, and in her apartment, we found a stack of letters written in 1949 about a man named Denison Deasy are you any relation? Is he your grandfather? And that was my dad. Mm. Um, and I said, well, I wrote, because this was on Facebook Messenger. She, she contacted me um, and I said, 1949, that's right. So she was telling me he'd been in London. I didn't know any of this stuff about my dad. I didn't know that he'd been in London, when he'd, he'd been to France. You know, I knew that he'd had a French wife, but I didn't really know when or how or how that had connected. Um, and it basically, as soon as she started emailing me and she sent me all of the, these translations of the French letters that her grandmother had written, and she said, you know, our grandmother was talking about your father until the day she died. And they actually sent me a recording of her in the hospital talking about my dad. Wow. Um, and this had been, you know, 36 years since he died and I just couldn't, it was all a bit crazy. Um, and I remember thinking in the pit of my stomach, oh, I'm going to have to write another book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was just, I was like, yeah. oh man, but I've done mm -hmm. it. And it was so hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think this is sort of where, um, why and where the whole memoir coaching and the courses that I do now where it's all come from because at that time as well a good friend of mine um she'd won a competition uh, a writing competition for a piece of memoir she'd written about uh running away from so she her dad was a vietnam vet and had very serious ptsd uh and so she and her her siblings and her mum had had to run away from home you know because he was very violent 
um, and she'd won a competition for this piece and long story short, it led to her um, publishing contract for that book. But she'd never published a book before either. And I saw her going through everything that I'd gone through with Love and Other U-Turns. So mm. she didn't know that she would have to organise the, the launch event and do as much public. She thought the publisher was going to do everything. Um, you know, she, she really didn't know anything about the promotion. She was really upset and kind of stressed and um, yeah. that sort of thing. And so, like, I sort of took it on myself to try and educate her for what she should be doing up to the launch and uh, that sort of thing. And then, um, yeah, we just talked a lot through, through the launch of her book and everything. Um, and that was when I was working on a letter from Paris, but I was determined that I would not write the book the same way that I did love another U-turn. So I didn't want to write the whole manuscript and then start pitching it. I was mm. like, I need a deadline. I need a book advance. I need <clears throat> yeah. um, all this stuff. So I was really, really strategic, which I'd never been before. Um, and I pitched, I wrote, I got things published. I um, used that to leverage, you know, a publisher's interest, which then led to a documentary. Um, there's a, a show in Australia called Australian Story, which is documentaries of, um, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I have. Oh, Okay. Um, well, one of the producers from Australian Story contacted me about this story about my dad, which I then, <coughs> pardon me, uh, leveraged into the book contract for a letter from Paris because I really Brilliant. wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm shortening it. There are a lot of very stressful phone calls and <laughs> um, emails, but I was determined that I would have a deadline and a contract before I sat down to write that book. <clears throat> um, so I worked on a letter from Paris um, and it was, uh, it, did, it was a bestseller when it came out in Australia two years ago and it's still been up and down a bestseller here and it's come out in the UK and the US uh, and Canada as well. Um, but the reason that I'm sharing that isn't to boast, it's because I was very, very specific and determined and strategic in everything that I did yeah. with both how I pitched the book, how I wrote it, um, to how it was published, um, how I worked with the editor, what I did pre-publicity, all of that sort of thing, um, because I had had such a bruising experience with Love and Other U-Turns. And the thing is, most people don't get a second chance to write a memoir or publish a memoir. So I was very lucky. Um, but this is what led me to create these courses and my sort of coaching that I do with authors uh, is because what I, saw, I saw what happened with my friend Ruth. I know what happened with me. Um, yeah. And so many people think the story's over when you sign that book deal. Sure. And, and I know what you're saying about self-publishing as well. If you actually, if you want a lucrative um, publishing contract self-publishing is the way to go and if you've already got a platform if you've already got you know an audience um, you might be better off self-publishing but for a lot of people like it was for me you want to be traditionally published because that's you know there's it's pretty amazing to have the backing of a traditional publisher um, yeah. and it's it, you know it's one of those dreams you want to be published by a top publisher and you know they do things that I mean, just the quality of working with the editors on A Letter from Paris taught me so much that I would yeah. not have learned if I'd, you know, I would never have self-published that book anyway because 
was too important to me um, that it be produced in a really quality, um, beautiful, I just really wanted it to be traditionally published. Um, but I understand that a lot of people, um, if, if the purpose is to make money, then I would say, yeah. sure, self-publish or even speed if you want to be speedy. No, and I also think there's a great deal more to be learned. I think both processes have education, but certainly yeah. the, old, the old school, there was you know, a valid moment in that to, to be had. And I think that there is, there's a great mystique. It's just like academia. It's just like obtaining yeah. degrees. Yeah. You know, there is still um, a great deal of pride that <clears throat> one should take out of executing <clears throat> those systems. And it sounds like, you know, your qualifications, what I love um, about the difficulty in this journey that you've <clears throat> kind of just unraveled for us is that, um, you couldn't come from a more qualified source, you know, to have love oh, and other U-turns and then a letter from Paris and, and being on this bestseller, you know, international list is amazing. Um, and I love, I, I don't really trust teachers that haven't had some kind of struggle. Well, that know? was the thing. That was the thing with me. And I, you know, and that was what made me so angry actually when I was at uni was mm -hmm. none of those teachers had been published. And I was like, what do you, you know, except for, yeah. you know, bizarre academic journals, but I was like, but I want to see your book in a shop, you know? <laughs> yes. And, and um, I want to hear the story, yeah. the difficulties or, you know, this, yeah. this, this horrible moment of someone flying from Sydney to kind of try and crush you until this friend uplifted you and all of that back and <sighs> forth. Um, yeah. I'm wondering, so with getting to your website and kind of crawling through the suite of um, <clears throat> online services that you have, can you kind of crawl anyone who hasn't um, visited your website yet or knows anything yeah. about it? What are the different services that you offer um, your clients? So it's, it's funny that we're doing this podcast now because I'm actually reconfiguring a few things because what I've realized, so I always wanted to offer memoir coaching and courses to show someone step by step how to write a memoir because I know how overwhelming mm. I how overwhelmed I felt at the beginning of a letter from Paris. I was like, oh, how do I even put the sample chapters together for a publisher? How do I, you know, because it's such a personal thing. It you write, it's so overwhelming to go, well, how do I, you know, jump into my entire life story? and pick out the most relevant or interesting pieces to this story. And so I sort of came up with a process and a method for that, finding the hook, which, you know, most storytelling, it's you'd find the same with documentaries. You're finding the, the hook, you're finding where the story actually begins. Like that yeah. is more crucial than anything. Um, you know, uh, finding the universal themes, finding... Um, the, the really unique personal aspects to the universal themes. So I'm, I'm always sort of obsessed with finding, like creating a mathematical or a strategic formula to something yeah. um, to, to make it less overwhelming. So I originally started, I, I created a course uh, called Memoir Academy, which was a six month step-by-step -step course for writing your memoir and getting it ready for a publisher. Um, and I've had a few people take that course uh, and I've realized that it sort of needs to be three courses because there's mm. three layers. There's three layers to, you know, writing and publishing a memoir. There's the actual writing of it, uh, which anyone can, can do if they love writing and craft is really fun to study and yeah, great to sit in your room and, and write your memoir. 
But then, and this is something that I noticed with my students who took the program last year, um, which I'm redoing, is if they hadn't got over their visibility issues, if they hadn't, uh, you know, one, one of my students didn't even have a website that had her name on it. She was too scared to use her real name mm -hmm. for any of her published pieces. And I realised that visibility is one of the biggest aspects of writing and publishing a memoir. So I sort of have to... I, I've put that into a separate uh, program, which is all, and I didn't realise that I'd done all of this with, um, you know, so all those years that I spent pitching articles and following up and writing freelance articles, that was me getting comfortable being visible, pitching and following up. Um, so I've created a, another a smaller program, which is all about getting, getting published and getting visible yeah. um, because that is actually going to lead to your book deal anyway. So, you know, if you want to be, um, traditionally published and if you want to self-publish uh, you really need to get visible too because you'll sell more books so I separated yeah. that um, and then this is the new program that I'm working on which I'm really excited about because it's everything that I was just sort of describing to you um, about you know my friend Ruth and then what I went through with Love and Other U-Turns which is people who signed the book deal great that's amazing that is a huge accomplishment but there's actually a six to 12 month process that they need to go through to ensure that that book sells for longer than two months. Um, because that might be the book, the only book that they ever publish and you want to give it the best chance yeah. of um, success. And self-care is a huge part of that um, process because otherwise how are you going to go on TV or, or radio or podcast and talk about your incredibly personal, uh, sometimes traumatic story because a lot of memoirs are about very traumatic um, experiences or u-turns you know sometimes like if it's a travel memoir like love and other u-turns that is a happy um that is a really happy story that i wrote but um you know for example with a letter, letter from paris i did a lot of talks library talks um i did some events in sydney at the alliance francaise because my dad was connected with the alliance francaise uh, and I had complete strangers coming up to me afterwards and, you know, asking me incredibly personal questions about my family. And if I hadn't been prepared for that, uh, and if I hadn't done it all before, I would have just fallen apart. And I still was extremely exhausted after, you know, promoting that book. But um, I had all these methods in place and I knew what I was getting into. And I think there's a real gap there. People think as soon as they've signed the book deal that that's, that's it, fantastic. I'll just hire a publicist and they can take care of the rest. Yeah. No, you actually have to do a lot, um, particularly with memoir because you, you are the story, you know. It's not like um, I did an event with um, a really well-known historical fiction author, Natasha Lester. I don't know if you've heard of her, mm -mm. Um, but she's hit the bestsellers in the, in the US um, with her latest book, The Paris Orphan. Um, and we did an event at a library and, you know, she had all these, it was the same library that I'd done an event at two or three months earlier. And she had members in the audience asking her questions and she looked so relaxed and so happy. And I realised, oh my God, it's because she didn't, because hers is a fiction. And I was like, oh man, you have to be so different. <laughs> um, 
and she wasn't like absolutely ruined after the event and you yeah. know just That's needing to go to a room. I had never <laughs> thought about that. She's just discussing the story she told. You yes. know, she's not discussing yeah. her history. Whereas I would it's feel personally I would feel so personally um sort of pried open after yeah. every media appearance yeah. or event. Um which is fine, you know, and there were que- and I did certain things to strengthen myself before that and there were questions that I wouldn't, not that I wouldn't answer them, but I'd sort of, I'd come up with, because I'd worked as a journalist, I'd sort of come up with deflecting yeah. ways to turn them back. But, you know, it's all this stuff that people don't know and I really want um, to educate people because, uh, yeah, a bit like the Legacy Project thing, if, if this memoir, if this book is the only book that you ever have published you want to give it the best chance of success and you owe you owe it to yourself as well um to to really look after yourself and really um promote it to the best of your ability your ability and make it a really joyous glamorous um wonderful thing because um yeah i'm in a lot of memoir groups on facebook um which has sort of shown me how um how damaging that whole launch process can be if, yeah. if people aren't prepared um, properly. So that's that's the new program that I'm working on, which is how more long one-on-one. is it? How long does it last? At least six months. I haven't uh, yeah yet. I haven't completely fine tuned the the material yet, but it has to be at least six months. I'm thinking of possibly extending it to twelve because most most publishers uh, give you at least twelve months lead time before the book comes out. Um, but yeah, and it, it's, it's more to cover not just the marketing and the publicity, but self-care and, you know, what you want, what you want to say, mm-hmm. um, media training from that perspective of, you know, if this is the only book that you have published, if, if this is what your children and your grandchildren are going to hear about your story, what would you like them to take away? So, you know, like politicians get trained to sure press conferences um authors need need that sort of training as well absolutely well given that you're revamping um a couple of things right now and kind of extending it into its proper um time length and category sectioning with the three different courses um what other goals and plans do you have for yourself moving forward are you looking at any new works yourself are you kind of honing in on this um coaching role this advisory role that you have for the next few years what do you see for yourself so i'm always um i'm always thinking of the next project at the moment i'm actually working on a proposal for my um my third memoir which is actually a dual memoir with my dad so as i as i worked through a letter from paris i found his manuscript in the library i found a memoir that he'd written and this is part Mm -hmm. of the reason i'm so passionate about memoir uh and even though, you know, he died when I was six, through reading his memoir, I feel like I've got a relationship with him. I know my dad again. So I really am so passionate about the value of memoir in mm. terms of writing. Um, you know, if he, if he hadn't left his memoirs, I wouldn't know so much amazing stuff that happened to him that, you know, even things about his character that have just really, um, really been important to learn. Um, so I'm working on a proposal for that, um, to be published as a follow-up to a letter from Paris. Um, I've been transcribing all the material because it's only in paper at the library. So over the last year, I've been transcribing it and 
into digital files. And now I'm just polishing it because it's sort of from the 1940s and the 50s. So um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty fun to work on that. Yeah. Um, and, and also uh, working on, yeah, these, I'm really excited working on these memoir programs. I have one of my programs that I'm not revamping that's just there, evergreen for anyone, uh, is for beginners. And that's a memoir journaling program. So that's a 30-day program um, because I, you know, I couldn't have written any of my memoirs without my journals. And it just sort of teaches you how to write in, uh, sort of how to ask yourself those questions that are going to get you writing in a way that you can then use for a, for a future published book if you want to. Certainly. Um, yeah, yeah so I love that. I love the call and response that you're having with your um, with your father as well. You know, I'm I'm a big believer in yeah. um, closed doors and um, death being maybe one of the most astute ones that we're faced with in this sphere. Not closing um, conversations and relationships. You know, I think yeah. that it's it's very finite to view it that way. And I love the idea that you're having this um, newfound conversation and relationship with your father it's, all these years later. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's, set it's up a work to be of love. Brilliant. It is so, I mean, I was working on it yesterday and I, I polished a couple of the chapters from his first trip to Paris in 1948. Mm -hmm. And I was just like marveling at it. I was just yeah. reading it. This is incredible. Yes. You know, it's like a Paris that is from a made up story, but mm -hmm. because it was in his diary, I know that it was true. And I just, yeah. yeah, that's the Paris fun. I want to go to. Everyone talks sorry? about their love for Paris. I want to be there and I can't, I know. you know, yeah. I can go I know. and read some of the stories. I want to go back to Simone de Beauvoir's Paris. Like I want yeah. that. This is like, yeah. have you seen Midnight in Paris, the Woody Allen film? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, this is like that. It's like, you know, he's just walking into a cafe and people yeah. are like, oh, regard my car, come and I will, I will take you somewhere better. Yeah. And just hopping in the car with people and yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, I cannot wait for it to come out at all. And uh, Louisa, I am sorry to say that we are wrapping up at up on time because we could, I could sit here for hour days with you. And oh, I've probably talked way too much. Sorry. No, not at all. I'm not editing any of this out. I'm not going to let my team do it either. Um, I want to know, I, this is my final question. I wrap everything up for those of you listening the same question. It's my favorite. She's never going away. I'll never stop asking it. But I was wondering, <laughs> Um, if you were in a park or a garden somewhere in beautiful Melbourne tomorrow at a socially safe distance, given the pandemic, and a young woman um, or female identified or non-binary individual walked up to you, so anyone other than a straight, white, cisgendered male, and said, listen, um, I, you know, I went through university, I went through this writing program, I think people have it wrong. Uh, I, I don't think there's enough application applied there, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to launch out on my own. Um, I'm going to write my memoirs and then I'm going to get them published and I'm, I'm going to do all of this and um, I'm going to use the grit and determination that uh, doesn't, hasn't been taught to me before. What are the top three pieces of advice you would give that individual knowing what you know now? Oh, it's so funny because I did actually run into a, a girl who sounded very similar to that at a bookstore a few months ago and she yeah. was so sweet and asking me questions because she wanted to be a writer. Um, the first thing I would say is persevere it's like it's like what what Dave said to me is you have to persevere mm. um, you'll probably get rejected the first 10 or 20 times so perseverance is more important than having a quick win um, yeah. the second thing is to always be learning 
So take everything as a learning opportunity, even the most brutal, you know, rejections or feedback. Uh, try to take the good and drop the bad because you can't take it personally or you'll just be wounded. So <laughs> try and just treat everything as a learning experience. Mm -hmm. um, and lastly, only speak to people who've been published <laughs> in terms of advice. Love uh, if that's what you want to do, just get your advice from people who've been published. Don't be listening to, you know, someone who's Aunt Jenny wrote a letter once 50 years ago <laughs> and that was maybe put in a newspaper. Yeah. Just find some people that you can model or, and even if you can't talk to them, read all their blogs, listen to their podcasts. You know, yeah. we're so lucky in the internet era. We can find mentors and not even meet them um, yeah. and learn all their best stuff. So yeah, they're my three pieces of advice. Persevere, um, take the good, drop the bad when you learn and uh, find someone that you can model uh, what you want to do from. Find someone actually published that you can model. <laughs> I love those three pieces, especially the last one. Only speak with people who published about publishing. Like, I love that. Yeah, it's I should so have put true. that first. <laughs> no, no, no. Leave it as last. Leave them on a high note, you know? I agree. Okay. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Louisa. I appreciate Thanks. it so much. And I know that everyone listening will as well. Thank you, Patricia. It was really good. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. And for everyone listening, thank you so much for giving us your time. I have been speaking today. I've had the brilliant opportunity to speak with Louisa DC. Um, you can find her at www. I'm going to spell it out L O U I S A D E A S E Y dot com for all of her services as well as um, information regarding all of her best selling books and works. And thank you again for giving me your time today. And until we speak again next time, remember to stay well, stay safe, and always bet on yourself. Slow and